This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. In a minute, we'll hear from Kathy Wood. She and her team manages over $9 billion for institutions and individual investors. Her focus is on cutting-edge technology, and she's looking for companies that are going to pave the way for the future. She doesn't see threats from robots. She thinks they're going to be creating jobs, not destroying them. And in the meantime, you can make money by looking into the future with optimism rather than with dark glasses. But first, here's what's ahead this week. Ah, yes, a perennial. Every six weeks we get it. The Federal Reserve is going to be meeting again, their board of governors, and there'll be plenty of speculation. What will they do about interest rates? Will they raise them, lower them, do nothing? My opinion is the Fed should just get out of the interest rate game in the first place, let the market set interest rates. But alas, that's not going to happen. So plenty of speculation, but the Fed's power over the economy and indeed over the stock market is overrated, but a lot of noise about it. Now, another thing you're going to hear more and more about are the rumblings that we're starting back channel negotiating with Iran. Whether anything come of these initiatives, who knows? We may avoid a confrontation there, but I'm a pessimist on it. I think Iran's ambitions remain. These economic sanctions have hit hard in a way that most experts didn't think would be possible. They thought if the U.S. didn't have the cooperation of its allies, sanctions wouldn't work. By golly, the experts were wrong. The U.S. power over the financial system, the functioning of the financial system, has never been higher. And this is what the experts overlooked. We're squeezing Iran around the financial throat. They're feeling it. Let's sit down and try to do a new deal. Well, this week, my special guest is Catherine Wood, founder and chief investment officer of ARK Invest. Between ETFs and clients, she and her team manages $9.5 billion. What makes the firm unusual, though, is its focus on disruptive technologies. So, Kathy, how did you become interested in disruptive technologies? And then we'll get into some interesting insights you have about passive investing and the like. Okay. Thank you, Steve. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, how did I get into disruptive innovation? I really got into it um, by accident, uh, when I was at Jenison Associates in the 80s, I had started as an economist. The analysts at Jenison were, at the time, they were called lifers. They still generally are lifers. So it was up to me if I wanted to become an equity analyst. I had to find my own universe. And so I became, I often say this, I f it felt a little like this, uh, uh, like a little dog under the table looking for scraps, seeing what they didn't want to follow, they, the other analysts. And as it turned out, uh, some of the uh, companies they didn't want to follow because they didn't fit neatly into any industry were things like database publishing, Reuters, Tellerate. What is that? And so I started and thought the model was really interesting. Wait a minute. Uh, all of these asset managers give their data to these companies, and then they buy it back, aggregate it. That's a great model. And, of course, it was a precursor for the Internet. Well, it sounds like uh, journalism. We interview you and then sell you back the information. Yes, exactly. So this is digitized, right? And the same thing with cellular. 
Uh, at the time, estimates, this is the early 80s, early to mid-80s, estimates were that, you know, we might sell a million of these globally. And, of course, we're into the billions now. Um, and what what happened, of course, was technology. Technology making uh, uh, any anything better, cheaper, smaller, uh, so forth. So uh, I learned very quickly that when innovation is underestimated in, in the early days, watch out, watch out. In other words, go where the crowds are not. Yes, absolutely. Now, you uh, said you believe, and I quote uh, the, from your firm, historians will look back on this era as one of unprecedented technological foment, perhaps on a scale of steam engines, electricity, automobiles, railroads, however you want to rank these things. Mm -hmm. Why do you think we're on the cusp? Well, I think it started in the 80s and 90s. Uh, you know, we had a, a bit of an economic revolution back then, and innovation started to take off. And then, of course, in the late 90s, uh, we had too much capital chasing too few opportunities too early, and we had a big shakeout, so tech and telecom bust. And then uh, we have the, the continuation, you know, moving back on track, and then we have 0809. And what we have found over the years is that during periods of tremendous uncertainty, turbulence, um, uh, lack of confidence, consumers and businesses are willing to think about doing things differently. Uh, and I think in all of the areas we're going to touch, we are seeing uh, changes. And they, they touch every sector, as, as we say very often. The sectors are blurring now because technology is permeating every sector. So the, the gleam of the eye of all of these innovation platforms really was in the late 90s. Uh, and then the markets got carried away and we ended in two very bad periods. But now we think we're ready for prime time. And the way you measure that is uh, okay, for every percentage point in decline in price, how much does demand increase? Are we ready for prime time? And just to give you an example of that, in the early 90s, uh, it cost $2.7 billion to sequence the first whole human genome. Even if that cost had come down, had been cut in half the next year, we weren't ready for prime time. Today, we're at 1,000 to 2,000. In five years, 100 to 200. We are ready for prime time. This gets to uh, something you uh, point out that, uh, yes, there's going to be this fantastic growth, but remember Schumpeter, creative destruction, mm -hmm. that a lot of value is going to be destroyed during yes. this period of time. Without a doubt. I mean, we see the auto sector in real trouble. Uh, the energy sector will be in, in trouble to the extent it depends on transportation uh, uh, for demand. Uh, we see anyone who doesn't uh, adopt artificial intelligence you know, into their business processes probably going to lose out. I mean, it's, it's going to be a startling period. You know, we, we do a chart, a timeline, where we point out, you know, the last time we saw multiple innovation platforms evolving at the same time was that 50-year period ended 29. And if you then draw a chart of what we're about to experience right now, what our director of research uh, calls technological foment, as, as you mentioned, it'll be very bad for companies who don't adapt to the new age and these innovation platforms, and it will be very good for those who are really bringing them to us. 
how are workers going to adjust? You're one of those who say this is going to create jobs, not destroy jobs. When we first started the firm, uh, Oxford University had just come out with the paper which said that because of automation and artificial intelligence, 47% of all the jobs in the United States were going to disappear. And they left uh, the conclusion there, hair on fire, right? And as we worked through that, we said, wait a minute, there's another side to this that they're missing. It's called productivity and wealth creation, new products and services that we can't even imagine. For example, in the early, early 90s, World Wide Web, who could have imagined Uber back then? Uber could not have happened without the, the Internet. Or even app writers. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. Just to underscore that, if you look at the early 60s, 60% of the jobs that were in existence then don't exist today. Correct. And, and we're, we're better 97% off. 97% are still working. Exactly. And the other interesting point about today is unemployment rates around the world or in, in China, U.S., China, Japan. I mean, there are labor shortages cropping up here in the United States, seven and a half million jobs are unfilled because of either they don't pay enough. Well, robotics, and especially collaborative robots, uh, is going to help solve that problem. Uh, or there's a skill set mismatch. So we do need retraining. And we, in our strategies, we look for opportunities to invest in retraining. Uh, but I think corporations are going to force or be forced to issue. And they'll do the retraining far better than a government program. Absolutely. And apprenticeship programs and so forth. So I think we're going to get creative about this and also solve some of the student loan programs that way as well. So let's get into the big five. Let's start with robotics. First with the traditional robot and then what you call cobots. Cobots. Uh, cobots, collaborative robots. Uh, what is happening because of collaborative robots and the company leading uh, the charge here is uh, Universal Ro Robots, which is owned by uh, Teradyne. Uh, they have about 50-60% share of collaborative robots. Uh, these robots are going to be outfitted with sensors so they can work alongside human beings and actually increase the labor productivity of uh, individuals as they start to oversee these cobots who are going to help them become more uh, productive. Give, give us real-life examples of how you see this working. Right. So uh, on assembly lines, uh, you know, especially the menial labor, which really no one really wants to do, Right. we think that uh, a worker who might now be doing all of that will oversee you know, 10 cobots, and just think how much value add that person um, is providing compared to previously. Uh, so uh, we, we certainly think assembly line work and pick and pack. Uh, Amazon, interestingly, uh, they started with 1,000 robots in their distribution warehouses when we started our firm around the early uh, 2014, and uh, they now have 300,000. Uh, as their labor force has exploded. Uh, so obviously they're taking huge amounts of share from traditional retail, but there, again, we're back to doing things better, cheaper, faster, more productively. Those you'd call cobots. Uh, well, th those are the really the precursor for, precursors of cobots. We think cobots are going to be working alongside human beings more so. How many yeah. years? Oh, it's already happening. Uh, you know, burger flipping. I mean, you're going to be in fully automated uh, restaurants at some point. 
And they don't need minimum wage? No, no, no minimum wage, no bathroom breaks, no vacations. Uh, they do need a little maintenance. But one of the reasons... Uh, Which creates jobs. Of course, of course. Uh, one of the reasons this is going to happen is the reason innovation always takes off. Costs are falling. We think by the year 2025, I believe it is, that the average collaborative robot will cost $11,000. And we were very recently closer to 40000 So you can see, and now we're into the 20s, you can see this is happening uh, very quickly. Uh, so 11000 uh, even small businesses are going to be able to afford this. Say something about that got a lot of hype and then a lot of denigration, 3D printing. Yes. 3D print. Define it, which, as you say, is layer upon layer. Yes. Walk us through that. So it's additive manufacturing, you know, layer by layer manufacturing. Instead of uh, carving something out, subtractive manufacturing, you're actually layering with material, you know, with uh, it's usually resins, uh, you know, and lasers layering um, and and creating a form factor from nothing from the ground up. Um, uh, in the the 2012 to 14 period, there was a lot of hype about 3D printing, and it was around consumer 3D printing. So we would all have uh, a 3D printer on our desks, just like we have uh, a PC. Well, uh, you know, you ask a simple question, why, and who knows? Jewelry? I don't know. Uh, you know, parts? Sounds like the PC. Keep my recipes on this thing? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, so... The consumer use case is not the first use case. It's a much higher value add um, use case, and that's aerospace and medical. Uh, so, additive manufacturing or 3D printing can cut uh, form factors anywhere from 50 to 90 percent, weight, cost, I mean, pretty provocative. Uh, if you l- think about the aerospace company's gross margin structure, Airbus is close to 15% uh, and Boeing close to 20%. That's gross margin. Um, telling an uh, aerospace engineer, you know, you can cut costs by 50 to 90% and, and uh, uh, lower the weight and change the form factor to something, if you include machine learning and 3D printing, that a human being couldn't even imagine – uh, and turning uh, parts in a turboprop jet, and this is a real case, uh, uh, one component in a turboprop jet, uh, when it was um, manufactured traditionally, uh, contained 855 parts. Today, it, it, it uh, includes 12 parts. And again, the combination of 3D printing, machine learning, form factors that human beings can't even conceive of, that's what's going to happen here. What that also means is that uh, finally we're going to get high tech into what you might call the atoms economy, things economy. Yes. Uh, I think 99%, maybe it's 95, but somewhere in the 95 to 100% range of all hearing aids are 3D printed. And manufacturers, once that, uh, once that space was ready to go, any manufacturer that did not convert to 3D printing in 500 days lost their business. Well, we see the same thing in the manufacture of drugs. The drug industry is still in the dark ages when it comes to making the stuff. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I certainly think uh, we're seeing three D printing um, in in the healthcare space. We're seeing it in you know the um, use of three D uh, uh, printing to um, uh, 
manufacture liver tissues so that uh, we can do uh, toxicity testing. So it is it is moving in, but healthcare, it seems to me, is even more reticent to do some of these um, new wave things. Well, let's go to uh, DNA, genome sequencing, another one of your big areas. Yes. Uh, cost, plummeting, mm-hmm. you mentioned. Yes, yes. And so if you look at um, the number of whole human genomes sequenced in 2018... About 5 million? Well, that's the cumulative, all that have ever been sequenced. Last year alone, 2.4 million. So half of all the genomes, human genomes, uh, and you always have to qualify, whole human genomes ever sequenced were sequenced last year. In five years, we think that will be 100 million. And it is going to scale dramatically from there. Uh, so think about that. That's uh, you know, uh, almost a 40-fold increase. Uh, this is what we mean by exponential growth. We don't think that analysts and portfolio managers and economists are, are prepared for this world because they've never seen it before. It's hard to believe these numbers, right? But the cost declines we're talking about are pushing us to those numbers. And when we get to $100 to $200 uh, in five years, we think... Um, our geneticists will be insisting that we have our genomes sequenced every year or every other year because they'll be able to find mutations from one exam to the next. And mutations are the earliest manifestation of disease. So wouldn't it be wonderful? On cancer, it's often yes. just one rogue cell. Exactly. Wouldn't it be wonderful to find cancer in stage one Especially because if we're right, and Manisha Sami, our analyst, spent eight years in Stanford University's uh, biology research labs, she's used CRISPR gene editing, and we'll get she to that believes, in a <laughs> yeah, she believes that we will be able to correct or edit out those mutations or well, programming let's, let's errors. Let's go to that now, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, this will help make you a real stand out at a cocktail party. Talking about <laughs> clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. CRISPR. CRISPR. <laughs> <laughs> yes, CRISPR is the gene editing technology um, that is creating a lot of hope here. Um, and I think the most dramatic example is um, pediatric blindness. So we're in human trials here in the United States, and one of the first is for pediatric blindness. Uh, And uh, in experiments, what um, the companies involved, so Editas is is the one involved in this, um, the the gene editing company. Uh, In experiments, uh, they have found that mice, baby mice born blind, when they edit this mutation, the baby can see again, the baby mouse can see, and the same with non-human primates. So here we are in human beings, and uh, our analysts believe it is going to work in human beings. Now, the stocks are not priced for success, and I'll just give you a sense of the, the, the difference between the late 90s and today. In the late 90s, if I had told investors that there were three companies with the foundational patents out there uh, for CRISPR gene editing, which, uh, which would provide cures for disease, not just treating symptoms, but actual cures, 
my guess is, given the royalty structure, that uh, those three stocks cumulatively would have they probably would have achieved $100, $200 billion in market cap because they'd apply to everything, maybe even more. Today, the three to de- together uh, can't even reach $5 billion. No one believes this. That's what's so interesting about this time. In the late 90s... So what are those three? Uh, so the three are Editas, which I just mentioned uh, with um, pediatric blindness, Intellia, and CRISPR therapeutics. And there has been an interesting development recently. Uh, The patent office seems to be favoring or leaning in favor of the Intellia CRISPR therapeutic uh, uh, patents. Uh, So uh, stay tuned. And uh, before we leave that, just to hit on uh, what you call liquid biopsies. Yes. Which just means you just take a blood sample and Right. And great things can happen. Yes. Well, being able to detect fragments of DNA uh, from right. cancer tumors, that's the killer app. And there are a lot of companies going uh, after that. Gardent is one. Uh, Invite uh, is one. Foundation Medicine, which uh, Roche bought, is another. Uh, so uh, there, there is a lot of investment in this space. Now, there are naysayers. Uh, there, there are naysayers, as, all, as they are, always are. Uh, but I, I really think that the innovation taking place in healthcare is beyond anything we've ever seen. Good thing. Let's go on to artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. which uh, frightens people. My uh, friend Mark Mills said we don't call cars artificial horses. We don't call <laughs> airplanes artificial birds. <laughs> but artificial intelligence, uh, so define it for us and then uh, make the point that things like Apple Watch are already beginning stages of that. Yes, facial image recognition uh, is, is a, a big one. Natural language uh, processing and recognition is another. Or uh, Blue River smart tractors. Smart tractors with infrared technology. They're able to detect where exactly to place seeds and how much water. And you can get tractors and drones working together in the new age farm. And here again, um, we'll see the the continued um, uh, move away from the farm. And this has been going on for a few hundred years, right? So uh, this is just another iteration. Quickly, how would you define it just so people don't get scared. Well, there are some people who are very scared because uh, they, they believe that, um, and we're already seeing some of this in the physical realm, where, as I mentioned before, with artificial intelligence or machine learning, we are able to uh, uh, see products designed now, parts designed. I mentioned this with the 3D printing, that human beings could not possibly conceive. What human beings do, the reason artificial intelligence is, is beginning to uh, mean something to us, it's been great for science fiction for, you know, 50-plus years, right? Uh, but we really haven't seen anything until, until Amazon started figuring out, you know, what we might like to buy or Netflix, what we might like to watch, or Amazon, you know, uh, saved us a little bit of time uh, opening up our phones and so forth. These are the very early stages, but the reason it's about to take off uh, in deep learning is we're taking the human being out of the equation, the human, for the most part. The human being uh, sets the objective. You know, I, in an autonomous, I want this autonomous vehicle to get from point A to point B 
in the quickest way possible and the safest way possible. That's just an example. And then what happens is you unleash big data, iterative algorithms, and supercomputing power uh, to get to the right answer, uh, with big data being critical to this. Just to be ultra, ultra simplistic, it's like in the old days you had rooms of uh, men and then women doing mathematical calculations. Exactly. And now you can uh, do it uh, instantly. Exactly. Yes, the calculator example as well. You know, many people were resistant to the, the calculator, think we'd all, you know... Oh, computers were once people. Right. There you go. Uh, so... We the, the the fear is um, that this moves just beyond the physical, you know, the assembly line, the, the examples I've given um, thus far, you know, because collaborative robots are going to be powered by artificial intelligence as well. Um, autonomous vehicles are robots, so artificial intelligence. It's really just super computation. It's super computation with huge amounts of data, algorithms that iterate to, you know, perfect whatever uh, the, the, the answer, uh, the goal is, and the supercomputing power bringing it all together. And so the human being coming out, it's, again, a human being cannot possibly imagine in an autonomous vehicle how many things could go wrong and for what reasons. Just can't imagine. And what we're seeing with experiments out there right now, Waymo in, in Arizona, Cruise Automation in San Francisco, is they, they have used too much, we believe, of the old way of doing things. Um, so it's more deterministic artificial intelligence where you do have a programmer involved uh, setting the rules. Uh, whereas Tesla uses probabilistic uh, artificial intelligence, does not let the human being's mind's limitations get in the way. So we think, again, even within artificial intelligence, there are forks in the road that some companies are going to take, and some will end up in dead ends and others not. Some say that uh, part of the problem with uh, autonomous uh, vehicles is that we're doing what some did in the early stages of the auto industry. They thought you could take a wagon, put an engine on it, and they have the automobile. Mm -hmm. That really you have to design these things from the ground up instead of just thinking software is going to do it. You have to redesign Correct. the whole hardware. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And that is what Tesla is doing. We get a lot of flack for our Tesla outlook and our Tesla research in some sense, but I, I think we've done more research on Tesla uh, from the right angles. And what I mean by that, robotics, artificial intelligence, big data. Well, even skeptics of Tesla will acknowledge that the regular auto industry is still their computer systems are very uh, crude. I mean, just yes. they're not up to speed. They are not. They are not. And so what uh, the observation you made is absolutely correct. We have to build this from the ground up. And you'll see with Tesla, there's a lot of, there's vertical integration there uh, because they need to control this ecosystem uh, as it evolves. And maybe as it matures, uh, we'll see more outsourcing. But right now, they, they need to control the ecosystem. Let's do it here. <laughs> Tesla, <laughs> have to do it, $4,000. Yes, yes. Actually, um, well, we've, because we... Um, SEC, we have all the caveats. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. We, it's been a very interesting journey with Tesla, and our conviction has only grown over time because of our research on robotics, artificial intelligence, uh, big data, 
and uh, like four thousand times the price of a car to share. <laughs> yes, per share. So the so the stock today is. Uh, it's under three hundred. Yeah, it's it right. It's under three hundred, and um, so we've we've put our model up on GitHub, and uh, so anyone can. Um, experiment with the variables and see exactly how we get to, it's actually not 4,000 anymore, it's 6,000, but we don't bother saying that too much because nobody believes the 4,000. But we do have a bear case for, for Tesla, the bear case. So just let's start there and do a reality check. Our bear case is that Tesla, which has 17% of the global electric vehicle market, is becomes nothing more than an electric vehicle manufacturer for the auto industry, and that it loses two-thirds of its share, goes down to 6% share. By the way, it's been sustaining its share uh, in, as EVs have grown, which is very unusual for, for an early-stage uh, innovator like this. Uh, so it two, loses two-thirds of its share, and its gross margins are 25%, and it does nothing more than uh, EVs in the auto sector. Uh, that gets us to a price point somewhere between $550 and $600. So our minimum hurdle rate of return in order to put an investment in the portfolio is 15% at a compound annual rate over five years. That means a doubling over five years. Our bear case for Tesla has more than a doubling. It's closer to 20% compound annual rate over five years. So let's uh, jump uh, going off of that to... Uh energy storage. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, people who are skeptical about the battery uh, mm -hmm. will say that it takes 100 pounds of materials uh, mined, moved, and processed for every one pound of battery fabricated, mm -hmm. that it just physically does not, physics just don't work. You need mining gigatons, lithium, copper, nickel, graph, cobalt, that it uh, just, the physics aren't there. Tesla and Panasonic yeah. together are, are proving that incorrect. Tesla's been innovating, and this is one of the reasons uh, battery technology is evolving. Well, the very first thing that uh, Elon Musk decided to do with his cars, and the reason people did not take him seriously, auto manufacturers didn't, analysts didn't, and, you know, he was subject to quite a bit of ridicule, is he decided to leverage off the consumer electronics battery. And uh, what that means is he used lithium-ion cylindrical batteries, you know, cell phone in, in your computers and so forth. No other manufacturer is using, is using consumer electronic batteries. And what he decided to do was line the bottom of the car with the battery. Again, another point of departure relative to other auto manufacturers. They didn't think it was possible to engineer a battery pack system the way Elon has. They thought it was impossible and thought it was unwise uh, because I think at the time he broke this story, we had cell phone batteries exploding, uh, you know, on aircraft and so forth. Um, so he, he defied the odds and has done it. N no other auto manufacturer is doing it this way. They're all using lithium-ion pouch technology, which is much higher cost right now. Uh, it's a newer technology. It's the slope of its learning curve is steeper, but uh, Elon is already three years ahead. They won't be able to catch up, even if Elon's slope doesn't change, or the slope of his batteries and theirs uh, uh, does change. 
Um, but what Elon's also doing is changing the chemistry in, in batteries. He's adding uh, silicon to anodes. He's pulling out cobalt and, uh, in, again, innovating to speed the technology along. Some people, and I think you're one of them, believe that electric vehicles are going to replace the internal combustion engine. Okay, according to our estimates, based on the learning curve associated with batteries, we believe that uh, electric vehicle sales uh, are going to increase from about 1.45 million last year to 26 million in five years. So, you know, that's that's almost a 20-fold increase uh, in an industry that has not seen exponential growth for 100 years. It's happening because battery costs are going to drop uh, so much in the next few years that the price of the average electric vehicle is going to drop below that of a gas-powered vehicle I'm going to, in about two years. And it will continue to fall so that in five years, uh, we would not be, five to six years, we would not be surprised to see the average electric vehicle at $15,000 compared to the Toyota Camry at 25000 Now, um, in terms of the electricity, well... Where, where does it come from? Where does it come from? Load balancing. I am charging my car while I'm asleep and all my lights are out. So I am helping electricity utilities to load balance a little bit better or a lot better than um, they have historically. You know, the other thing we didn't touch on, but oil prices, I got my Model 3 in um, two, uh, September of last year. I have not been to a gas station since. So let's go to uh, blockchain technology, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. Give us your overview on that, especially uh Let's, uh, let, let, let's start actually with something uh, people are already using uh, because when you say Bitcoin, people's minds go kablooey. Mm -hmm. Let's start with digital wallets, mm -hmm. which right now are really payments. You see it uh, doing far more than that, just like handhelds did far more today than they did 35 years ago when they started just with telephony. Yes. Uh, our work <clears throat> on mobile payments uh, uh, informed by what's going on in China. I mean, we watched China's mobile payments go from $1 trillion the year we started the firm in 2014 to $26 trillion last year. Well, Think 90 of percent of their payments are digital now? Well, 90 percent of the world's digital payments are Chinese right now. I think it's 92 it was the number last year. And even in four to five years, we think China will still be 75, 80% of global m mobile digital payments. Walk us through the numbers, what it takes for a bank to get a checking account oh, yeah. customer and what you can have on your hand or sure. an app. Sure. Uh, the traditional bank to get a, a, a new deposit account pays anywhere from $300 to $1,500. Now, what's happening is that model is being disrupted uh, because you have um, Venmo and Square Cash App able, their cost of customer acquisition is $20, you know, compared to that $300 to $1,500. And so they are able to attract new customers. Uh, again, it's always better, cheaper, faster. Uh, they are. They started with the unbanked. There are 20 million uh, people unbanked in this country, 
And so we're seeing uh, them embrace the Square Cash app. In fact, if you look, if you look at the adoption of the Cash app, you'll see that it is in some of the poorest areas of our country where most of the unbanked people are. We did that. Our analyst, uh, Max Friedrich, just tumbled upon that and said, hey, wait a minute. What, why, is it, why is it focused on these areas? And then we did income by MSA, and it turned out that's exactly the reason. So it's traditional creative disruption does start at the low end. A lot of the reason many people are skeptical of Tesla is it started at the high end, more like Apple did. Um, we, we think this can happen both ways. So it's like handhelds versus wirelines. Right, right. Now, uh, one of the uh, challenges on uh, Bitcoin mm-hmm. uh, becoming a real currency or any of the cryptocurrencies is they're volatile. Steak one day, dog food the next. <laughs> now, that kind of wild volatility, that's not money. Money has to be stable in value. We wrote our first Bitcoin <clears throat> white paper in uh, 2015, and we, t- and we were the first public asset manager to gain exposure to Bitcoin when it was $250. The white paper we did was in collaboration with Art Laffer. And Art was not going to put his name on a paper about a cryptocurrency unless he really understood what this was. And as we were, and, and believe me, he put us through the ringer. We went so many back and forths. I don't know, you've, you've written pieces with him, so you, you know what a perfectionist he is. So um, at one point he said, okay, this is, the, this is a rules-based system. This is good. Now, I don't think it's the right rule. This is a quantity rule. And what you want is a price rule if you want a means of exchange. Exactly. Satoshi or whoever created Bitcoin thought it was supply and not uh, trustworthy in value. Well, what's interesting about this is Art said, well, you know what? It's rules-based. That's good. It can serve as a good store of value. And so as, as time went on, in fact, when we were writing the paper, I said, Art, how big could this be? This could be huge. And he said, well, how big is the U.S. monetary base? And I said, $4.5 trillion, which it was at the time. He said, well, there you have your answer. And as, so what, what's very interesting about this is it is, we believe, going to be a, an important store of value. We do believe this crypto assets are a new asset class. So for the first time since the 16 equities in the 1600, we have a new asset class evolving here. Um, the quantity rule for Bitcoin should make it a very good store of value. It is mathematically metered to top out at 21 million units. We're at 17 now. And so the scarcity value, that concept, and I think it will take an act of God for the developers to, um, to change that 21 million. After it peaked and it collapsed, what we saw was it behaved like the reserve currency of the crypto asset ecosystem. Its share of the network value of all crypto assets, it had dropped as low as the low 30s in 2017. And what we have now is it's up to the low 60s. So there was a flight to safety in the crypto asset world. It went into Bitcoin. That was a clue to us that uh, Bitcoin is serving as the reserve currency, which is a very high-velocity form of, uh, of money. So you've got the store of value, low velocity. You've got reserve currency, high velocity. 
And uh, uh, so that's a great antidote. So we really believe that it ha- our confidence in Bitcoin as the global digital currency has increased in the last year and a half during, during the downturn. In terms of uh, the wallet, uh, the wallet is like really the handheld was 35 years ago. Absolutely. And you believe in the future you can do all your financial services, which means when you go to a store, you use a credit card. We think it's so seamless. Yes. But really, it's a very expensive, cumbersome system, mm-hmm. tens of billions, hundreds of billions, and this blockchain is going to rip it all out. Right. Wallets will rip it all out. Right. Money over IP. I mean, you're taking out the middleman, you know, you're, and you're making the transmission of money effectively free, right? Uh, I mean, the transmission right now, you know, I've always wondered here, I can trade in milliseconds, but so the settlement. short bank stocks? We think banks are are going to be, um, uh, you know, they're going to be commoditized. And uh, think about this: you have um, you have digital really taking over. They don't have the right DNA for this, and you have yield curves. If we're right, inverted. It's a big problem for banks. And you know, it's not surprising for us to see in Europe. Um, it so is. So the banks, the new Kodaks. Yes, we think so. We think the banks are in trouble. Well, quite a future we have ahead of us. (laughs) And uh, Kathy, thank you so much for being with us and sharing your time. Thank you, Steve. And now, my read for the week. It's called The New German Question in Foreign Affairs Magazine, foreignaffairs.com, by historian Robert Kagan, who's just come out with a book saying, without U.S. leadership in the world, bad things are going to happen that the peace of the past 75 years came from U.S. firm leadership in the world. We didn't always get things right, but we made sure the bad guys didn't get out of line. He focuses on Germany. We assume Germany has sunk deep democratic roots, which it has, but Europe is starting to tremble again. Europe is wondering, what is its future? What is the future of the euro? What is the future of the European Union? Could it fracture again and become a source of power politics? I don't think any of that's going to happen, but we should never take anything for granted, and Kagan's piece is worth reading for us not to get complacent about what happens in Europe. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.